Uh, today is a good day, all right? I love that last line, may the God of hope fill you with all joy in believing. We're going to get to that scripture later on in this series, but uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, it maybe hasn't seemed like a lot of joy, okay? The series is called The Good News. It hasn't been a lot of good news. We've been covering the bad news, and Jeremy got up here last week, and he said, he said, uh, he, this, one of the greatest scriptures in, in all of the Bible is in Romans chapter 3. And he said, and I don't get to preach that one. <laughs> he, said, he said, John was tired of giving you bad news, and so he stuck me with the worst news of all. And he, he's not lying. All right, I was, no, I already had a trip planned for last week that I didn't end up going on, but I had a trip planned for last week, and it just worked out for him to preach on that week. But I do have to tell you that after the fourth week of this series of talking about the bad news, I was like, I'm done with the bad news. I don't want any more bad news. I get it, okay? Paul, you have driven the nail home plenty, okay? We got it. He says that everyone has sinned, right? That's bad news for everybody. He says that morality, being good, can't save you. And that's true. We talked about that. He says even you, the Jews, the law that you have, that God gave you, the law can't save you. And so all of us are without hope if we're depending on ourselves for salvation, if we're depending on ourselves to be just or right in front of God. And so last week, Jeremy drove that nail home and said, we have no excuses, we are responsible for our own sin, and we have all sinned and fallen short. And so that's bad news, but now we get to get, Paul is going to turn the corner in the book of Romans, and today we get to talk about the good news, the best news of all. All right, and in order to talk about why this is so important and what we're going to discuss today, I want to talk about math. Yes. Okay. Some of you like it. Okay, good. Some of you, you do not. All right. I have always been a math person. When I was in school, math was always my best subject. When I went to college, I majored in math for one year. <laughs> and, then, and then I figured out that, that college level math was not the same kind of math I was used to. I was used to dealing with numbers, not letters. Anyway, but I loved math. I always did really well in math. It was always my strongest subject in school. And I remember specifically one year, this was in middle school, I think it was seventh grade, such a fun age. Um, I point to my wife because she works at a middle school and she loves seventh graders. And, uh, but it's such an interesting time. You really think you know everything in the seventh grade. That's what I've come to learn now with seventh graders in my house. And so uh, you really think you know everything. And I remember on one test in particular, I would have had 100 on that test, except my teacher marked me wrong on one question. But here's the thing. I, yeah, <laughs> thank you for your pity. <laughs> I, I would have had 100, but I got one question wrong. But the thing is, I got the right answer. The answer was right, but on this test, we had to show our work, and the work that I showed was wrong. I did it the wrong way. But I still got to the right answer. And so I got the test back from my teacher, and I proceeded immediately to march up to the desk and begin debating her on why I should not have lost points on that question. Yes, I'm sorry, Jess. All right, why I should not have lost points on that question because whether my work was wrong or not, I got the right answer. So I said, why should I get this question mark wrong when I got the right answer? And she said, because you won't next time. It's really important. Just knowing the answer 
doesn't give you the full picture. You need to understand not only what the answer is, but how you got to the answer. Because if you understand how you got to the answer or why that was the right answer, then you can get the question right the next time too, and the next time, and the next time. That's why they make us show our work. And I was mad about that, but my parents, when I got home, made it very clear to me that I was wrong, okay? <laughs> that I was wrong, and my teacher was right. If I have to show the work, I got to do the work the right way, because next time I won't get it right. Well, that's what I want to do today. Because I don't think it's any question, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone here or anybody that you talk to in the general public who knows anything about Christianity, that if I say that sin is the problem, what is the answer? Jesus. Jesus is the answer, right? That's the, e that's the obvious answer for us. Everybody knows that's the answer for us, right? If this is the bad news, if the bad news is we're sinful, what's the good news? Well, the good news is that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and he rose again on the third day. We kind of all know that. It's not a big surprise, I don't think, to anyone. That's the answer. But what we're going to deal with today is why is that the answer? Why is that necessary? Why couldn't God... Why couldn't God just look at humanity and say, you are sinful and you've turned your back on me, and if you believe in me, I forgive you? Why did Jesus have to come here? Why did Jesus have to give his life on the cross and suffer? Why did he have to rise? Why did he have to go through that? Why couldn't God just forgive us? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the good news of not only what Jesus did, but why he did it. And why he had to do it. And when we do that, we are going to deepen our understanding of what he did for us. And it's going to help us not only to appreciate him more, but also better understand how to apply the gospel and this truth to our life every single day. All right, to do that, we are going to do one of our shorter passages of scripture that we're going to do in the series. We're just going to do six verses, Romans chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans 3. For those of you that might be new with us, Paul is writing to the church. He's the Apostle Paul, um, who once was a Pharisee, a religious leader of the Jews, converted to Christianity miraculously, and then he begins planting churches and encouraging churches all throughout the region. One of the most influential Christians that ever lived. And he knows a bunch of Christians in Rome. He hasn't been there, even though he's a Roman citizen. He hasn't been there since his conversion. And um, he's trying to encourage these people who are, they aren't re really organized into an official church yet, not like a centralized church in Rome. They're house churches that are meeting all over the city. And he wants to make sure they have a really firm understanding of what they believe because there's lots of different ideas going on around them. And so uh, this is in Romans chapter 3. Hopefully you've had time to get there by now. Romans chapter 3. And uh, we're going to start in verse 21. All right, he's talked about the, the, the wrath of God, which has been shown on man because of our sin. And now he says, verse 21, but now, and I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we'll come, back, we'll come back through it in pieces. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to take just a moment right now as we've read that. I want to take a moment to pray, make sure that we are focused on the scripture, on God's truth and what he wants to do for us today. So let's go to him now in prayer. Father, uh, we come before you right now, having read your word, having heard from you through the Apostle Paul. And we want right now for you to open the, our eyes and to open our hearts. We want for you to speak to us in the power and leadership of the Spirit so that we can better understand you, so that we can better understand what you've done for us and why you had to do it, so that we can deepen in our love for you and appreciation of you, that we can deepen in our appreciation and understanding of Jesus and what he did for us. And so right now, we, we shut out anything that would distract us from that, that would keep us from continuing to walk the path that is honoring to you. And we ask that you lead us and that you instruct us and that you guide us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So the big question here is, uh, we know what the good news is. The good news is that even though we are sinful, Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross. And he paid for our sin on the cross. And he was put into the tomb, and on the third day, he rose again. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we can be justified before God. We can be saved. Right? That is the good news. But why? Why did he have to do that? Why couldn't God just say, okay, you're forgiven? If you see me, if you believe in me, you're forgiven. Why did Jesus have to go through all of that? Well, let's dig in. Let's, let's pull this apart and understand what exactly is being said. Let's start in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Now, he's talked about this already. He's talked about how the, the Jews had the law to follow, and many of them thought that if they followed that so closely that they were going to be saved as a result of following the law. But the, one of the primary purposes of the law was to show people that they were incapable of living up to God's standard. Here's the standard. It's not even the complete standard, by the way, but here's the standard, and you can't even do this stuff. So if you can't do this stuff, there's no way you can, you can meet the standard of God, which is holiness and righteousness. And so this is not sufficient. I, there has to be something or someone that is. And so that was the purpose of the law. And God is showing a righteousness apart from that. It's now being revealed. Right? But he says it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. So in, in groups this week, you're going to dig more into that and understand where that's coming from and, and talk about how, how the law and the prophets witness this. Basically, what he's saying is this righteousness of God is just now being revealed, but it's always been here. The prophets talked about it. The law pointed you towards it. It's witnessed by them, but it's just now being revealed to us. Right? Even the righteousness, this is verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. This is a righteousness that doesn't come from keeping the rules, okay? That we talk about this all the time here in this church. It's very easy even for Christians to slip into legalism and think that if you just keep all the rules, if you just keep the rules, then you are going to be justified before God. It's easy even for Christians to start using the rules or our contemporary law to try and judge whether another person is saved. So we'll look at their life and we'll say, well, they don't keep all of the rules and so they must not be saved. 
Well, that's not how they're saved anyway. And so that's not our place to judge where they are and what their, what their, what, uh, uh, their salvation status, so to speak, is. But this is apart from the law. It's not through the law. It is through faith, he says. Faith in Jesus. It's a new righteousness. It's been there, but it's just now being revealed through faith in Jesus. And the law and the prophets all point to this. All right? Like I said in groups, you're going to talk about where it does that and how it does that. And then he says, it is to all, meaning this message of righteousness is for everyone. It's for, it's for the Jews who have the law. It's for the Gentiles who don't. It's for the Greek philosophers, and it's for the, the, the barbarians, and it's for everyone. It is to all. And then he says, and it is on all who believe. And so it is for everyone, and it is on those who put their faith in Jesus, all those who believe in him. And then he goes on, verse, uh, the second part of verse 22. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And now this is a recap of what he's already said, but it, there's a very important, very important point he makes there. He says, all have sinned. He's talked about that. We've talked about that for weeks. All have sinned and fall short. Means if we're... I love there's a, um, a bishop around the turn of the century, like the 1900s, um, Bishop Hanley Mole, that, that said this. I just love, love, love the way he said it. He said, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, meaning the glory of God. They are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. So yes, sir, you might look at someone's life and you might say, well, they sin terribly. And then you might look at someone else's life and say, well, that's the best person I've ever seen in my entire life. But either way, all of us fall short. All of us fall short. There's no way in our own righteousness that we could possibly reach the righteousness of God to satisfy his commands. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Amen. All right. And then he says this. This is so important. Verse 24. We all fall short, but 24 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's so much here. <laughs> and again, in groups, you're going to really dig into some of these words that are here. But justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified, first of all. To, to be justified, we've used that word a lot in this series already, but to be justified is to be declared righteous. It's not earned. To be justified is to be declared righteous, but it is not to be made righteous. So when we're justified, it doesn't mean we're suddenly perfect. It doesn't mean that we are suddenly incapable of sinning now or, or our, you know, what it means is that when we are justified by God, we are declared righteous in that moment. Meaning our sin is not going to be punished eternally, that it's not going to be held against us. We uh, receive the righteousness of Jesus. Right? In fact, Paul says, I am the righteousness of God in one place where he writes. So we are declared righteous. And he gives that to us freely, justified freely. He gives it to us. He asks nothing and requires nothing in return. Nothing in return. There's, there's, no, there's no act you have to do. There's no ceremony you have to go through with. 
You are justified freely. And again, in groups, you're going to talk about that word freely and what it means in some other scriptures where Paul talks about that himself. All right. He asks nothing in return. Knowing that we can't, we can't even bring anything that's worthy anyway. And so he justifies us freely. Now, the question we're asking is, you know, why did Jesus have to do this? Why couldn't God have just justified us freely? Why couldn't, why did Jesus, he says, uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, why does Jesus have to go do that? Why do we need redemption in Christ Jesus? Why can't he just justify us freely on his own? And the answer is because it would create a conflict with God. Because God is holy, God is righteous, and God is just. And there has to be a penalty paid for sin. He can't, just, he can't just write it off. If he just writes it off, then he's not just. It's just like in a courtroom, if somebody is convicted of a crime, then, then justice and mercy stand opposed to one another. You have to choose between the two. You're either, you either impose justice and the penalty of that crime, or you give mercy and let the person go free. But you can't have both in the same place at the same time because they're opposed to each other. So if God just said, okay, you're off the hook, believe in me, we're just going to wash that away, then he wouldn't impose the penalty of the sin and therefore wouldn't be just and righteous. And so this creates a real problem that has to be fixed. How can God be both just and righteous at the same time? Or just and merciful at the same time? I meant to say. Because sin creates a debt. Sin creates a debt, and that debt has to be paid. The penalty has to be paid. Which sounds, I guess, to me, at least on, on, on a, a big level, seems very conceptual, right? Why? Why does... Why, why does sin create a debt? What does that even mean? And if we think about it, we already know this is the case. Because this is subconsciously, in most cases, this is the way we already think. Sin creates a debt. It's how we think, and it's how we speak, even though we may not even realize it's how we speak. Just think, think about this for a second. If somebody wrongs you, Somebody does something to you. What do we say? They have to pay. They got to pay. Someone's got to pay. Right? This is, this is justice. When, when one person wrongs another person, we say somebody's got to pay. Or, or somebody wrongs us and you say, you can make it up to me. Sometimes that's a tangible thing that happens, and that making up is a tangible thing, and sometimes it's an intangible thing. We understand that when sin happens, when, when someone victimizes someone else or sins against someone else, it creates a deficit. It creates a, a debt, and that debt, in order for things to be right again, that debt needs to be paid. And this is the way, because this, this is true, and this is built within our very heart and our soul. It's the reason... That, that we feel that way about justice. And the same thing is true with God. When we sin against God, it creates a debt. Sin creates a debt, a deficit, and it has to be paid. And so what did Jesus do? He says, 
We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And the word that he uses here for redemption would have been very familiar to them. It's a word that would have been used when someone bought someone out of slavery or when someone paid the ransom for a soldier that was being held captive. They would, in battle, they would hold soldiers captive and then they would ransom those soldiers back to the, the opposing army. And this is the word that would be used when you would pay that debt to set the person free. So what Paul is saying is, your sin and my sin created a debt with God and we can only be justified freely if Jesus redeems the debt. If Jesus pays the debt for us. Now he didn't, there was no deficit with him and God. There was no debt to be paid because Jesus had never sinned. Jesus was in perfect unity with his father as a person of the Trinity. He lived without sin. And so there was no debt for Jesus to pay. Yet Jesus chose to pay the debt for us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, these are verses we read all the time in our church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a gift. This is a gift that Jesus gives to you. We should pay the debt. I should pay the debt. You should pay the debt. But Jesus Christ offered to pay the debt for us. We are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. How did he do it? Verse 25. Whom God, speaking of Jesus, verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. I know, not a word we use, right? A propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. What does that word mean? Propitiation. You might, other versions might, might use other words here. It's a hard concept for us to grasp. This is the word that Paul uses here for propitiation, that we translate propitiation, at least in the New King James that we're using. Uh, that word only shows up two times in the New Testament. It shows up here, and it shows up in the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is writing about the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was the, the box that they had in the Old Testament that would travel with them that contained the, the Ten Commandments, and it was very ornate, and they carried it around, and it contained the presence of God, and they kept it in a special holy place in the temple. They had the temple courtyard, they had the holy place, and they had the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And they would only, the high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies one time of year on the Day of Atonement. In Hebrews, when this word is used, the author says that, they, that on the Ark of the Covenant are the angels with outstretched wings, which meet in the middle, and then below that is the, well, let me get the word right, hilasterion. That's the word that's used here. And in Hebrews, it's talking about the mercy seat. It's the place at the top of the Ark of the Covenant where they would sprinkle the sacrifice, the blood from the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And it's the same word that Paul uses here. So you could accurately translate this to say, God set forth Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood. 
What is the, what's the mercy seat? Every single year on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest would be brought two goats. And he would choose one of those goats, and that goat would be sacrificed. And they would take the blood from that goat, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of that goat onto the mercy seat. And then he would walk back out, and there were other things he would do, but this was the key thing. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And then he would walk back out, and he would put his hands on the head of the second goat, and then they would take the second goat out into the wilderness and set it free. It's called the scapegoat. And what it symbolized was the atonement or the payment for the sins of the people for that year. But there's no way that the blood of goats or sheep could cover the sins of man. It was meant to point them forward to something else, a perfect sacrifice that would come later. And that sacrifice was Jesus. To give his life on the cross and to shed his blood on our behalf, covering our sins and becoming the mercy seat, the propitiation through his blood. That is what Jesus chose to do for you and for me. Now, I don't know about you. I do, actually. But I don't deserve that. I don't deserve it even for a second. When I think about my own sin, when I think about the things that I have thought and the things that I've done and the things that I have said, to think that Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God, would give his life for me, would pay my debt, I can't even wrap my head around that. Um, this week in, in groups, you're going to do a little bit of a, uh, a thought experiment. You can go ahead and be, be thinking about it in advance. But the first question is, imagine that someone walked into this room right now, or it's, it's something like this anyway. Somebody walked into this room right now, and they said, whatever it is, your biggest debt is, your mortgage or your you know, car or your student loans or whatever it is, they said, it's paid. And what would that mean to you? Yeah. How would you feel about them? What would you you expect from them? Or what would you expect they expect from you? Like, start thinking about all that stuff because essentially this is what Jesus did. Jesus came and he knew you and he knew your sin and he gave his life on the cross to pay for your sin, to set you free. And offer it to you without asking a single thing or expecting a single thing in return. There are things he hopes in return. Again, you're going to talk about that in group, but expecting nothing in return. That he would offer his life for you and for me. I just, my hope for today, for for me, and this is what I've been doing as I've been getting ready, and I hope that it's you after hearing this, is that we just spend some time reflecting on that and letting that sink in and deepen in our heart and in our mind so that we begin to really appreciate Jesus on a deeper level than we've ever appreciated him before.
To think that he would step in in our place and do that and offer himself so that we could go free. Jesus is the only one who could perfectly satisfy this, and he's the only one who could survive it. He satisfied the debt so we could go free, and that's given to us by grace. So just in your, in your own heart, your own mind, either right now or all week long, or <laughs> just say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for me. He goes on. Let's keep going. Paul goes on. He says, verse 25, because in his forbearance, that means patience. Again, that's not a word we use often, but in his patience, in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Uh, he's talking about the sins that were committed before Christ. Um, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a, a kind of a wordplay that he does in Greek here. Those two words, just and justifier, they both have the same root word. It, it's Actually, I think the New King James does a pretty good job of translating this and getting that, the essence of that. But it's uh, he, that he could be righteous and the righteous of fire. <laughs> All right? That God could be just and righteous and impose the due penalty of sin, but also be gracious to us and forgive us. By allowing his wrath, allowing the punishment and payment for sin to be poured out on Jesus instead of being poured out on us. What an incredible extension of grace. Uh, this week, actually, I was uh, talking with Gary on uh, Saturday on the phone. He mentioned a verse to me so beautiful. It's in uh, Psalm 85, Psalm 8510. It says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. It's such a beautiful way to put it. Awkward for some of you. Beautiful, <laughs> though, I think. It was the only way. It was the only way for it to work. Uh, even in the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has been is uh, preparing. He's going to be betrayed soon by Judas, and he's praying. And he prays what we call the high priestly prayer, one of the most beautiful prayers, and, and a section where he directs his words like directly at us. But as he's praying, he says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. So if there is any other way to do this, if there's any other way to do it, if you could just forgive them, if we could do it through the law, if we could come up with a new law, like if we could figure this out, if there's any other way to do this, I don't want to do this. <laughs> Nevertheless, he said, not your will, or not my will, I won't get that wrong. Not my will, but your will be done. It was the only way. It was the only way. What does he require of us? Nothing. We're not paying him back. When we, when we receive salvation and then we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to walk with him, we choose to be obedient to him, we choose to serve him. We choose to love other people. We choose to be generous. We choose to be humble. We choose to be committed. We choose to be gracious. We choose to be the people he wants us to be. We are not doing that to pay him back. Because we can't. 
There wasn't anything that we could do to earn salvation before we had it, and there's nothing we can do to earn salvation after we have it. We're not paying them back. When we make the choice, he doesn't require anything of us. But he does hope and desire for us that we would make the choice to do all of those things, to follow him in faith and to walk with him and to become the people he wants us to be, not because we have to, but because we stand in the grace and the love of Jesus Christ and are amazed by what he has done for us and all we can think to do is to give our life back to him. The only, we can't ever repay him, but to honor him and give him glory and to thank him and to respect him is to make the choice to follow him and walk with him in faith and say, I want to be everything that you want me to be. Everything that you want me to be. Because you gave your life for me. Because Jesus, you stepped in and did for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself. And so a life of faith for a Christian should come out of the deepest sense of gratitude and worship. Expressing to God how much we love him through our entire life. Because we understand the gospel. Because we understand that there is nothing we could do to earn salvation. But Jesus Christ stepped in and paid our debt on our behalf. And we have seen that and said, I believe in you. And I trust you to save me, not myself. And because my trust and my faith is in Jesus, now I want to walk my entire life with you the best I can. That's all he really wants from us. He doesn't want us to to obey and walk with him and follow him on some obligation like we are now in debt to him. Jesus, it's, it's not like Jesus paid my debt and so now I'm in debt to him. That's not it. The debt has been paid. There is no debt. I, uh, years and years and years ago, when I was, <clears throat> I was going to say when I was a younger man, but then my <laughs> voice cracked and you might think I was, I'm a younger man. <laughs> um, I was in college, I think, and um, and uh, I was home for the summer, and the town I grew up in is called Canandaigua, New York, okay? Hard to say, harder to spell. Um, but it's one of the Finger Lakes. It's right on the, the Finger Lakes, and I like to say it's the pinky of the Finger Lakes. People don't like it when I say that. Jess tells me not to say it that way, but I, I, I Yeah, this is the pinky of the Finger Lakes. Anyway, um, but uh, I grew up on that lake. There's a camp on that lake, a Christian camp called Laterno Christian Camp and Conference Center. And um, I grew up there. I basically every summer was was there all all year long. The uh, all my friends worked there. We were there constantly. And um, it was a kind of a big camp, cabins like a hotel building, a retreat for pastors, dining hall, all that kind of stuff. And then it was on the lake and um, had a big dock, big swimming area with a floating dock and a slide and all that kind of stuff and rowboats and there was a couple of ski boats there too. And so one summer I was home for. Um, for uh, a break, summer break in college, and we were all hanging out at Laterno, and uh, me and some friends were out in the boats. We were out in the water. Um, wakeboarding was not a thing yet, so we were kneeboarding. That's what was cool at the time, and so we're out on the lake, and we're kneeboarding. My uh, other friend, Mike, was the uh, lifeguard, 
And um, this is a, a side point, and it's not relevant, but uh, Mike was really hairy, and he always wore a white tank top. And so he shaved the shape of the tank top into his, into his chest hair. So when he would take his tank top off, it looked like he was still wearing his tank top. It was fantastic. Um, anyway, he, he, he said once that he was going to get a tattoo of a lawnmower and then just shave a strip going down. Anyway, he never did that, I don't think. He ended up being a sniper in the military, by the way. So that's, the, that's what's happening there. All right, anyway, so he was a lifeguard. And, uh, and my other friend, Ben, was, was there at the, uh, right by the lifeguard tower with him, also went into the military. But um, he was standing there next to Mike. And we were out in the boat with some other friends skiing or uh, kneeboarding. And I noticed we, we stopped. We were kind of reloading, getting someone else out in the water. And um, I noticed a big commotion. Okay. I noticed a bunch of people standing around on the, on the dock looking out toward us. So, you know, I assumed they were just impressed uh, with, <laughs> with, the, with, 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 with the tricks that, that we'd been doing. Um, but that was not, in fact, the case. Um, so it turns out, we didn't know this at the time, but it turns out that there was a group that had come to the camp that weekend. It was a Saturday. that had come just for the day, and they were all people that had come from the city who had never been sort of out to the country, like a fresh air program kind of thing. And so they'd never been out to the, to the country or a lake like this, and so they'd taken a day trip out to Letourneau. And a couple of them decided that they wanted to go fishing, and so they had gotten a canoe and had had rowed out or had paddled out away from the shore a good ways. And these were two, like, really big dudes, by the way, like 300 pounds plus, big dudes. I don't know why they got in a canoe, honestly, but they did. And they got in a canoe, and they had themselves and a cooler in the canoe, and they had, they had uh, they'd come out, and the lake had started getting choppy. It's a fairly big lake. It's like 20 miles long, straight. And so the wind will come down and start and, and chop the water up uh, pretty quickly. And so it started getting choppy, and their canoe had capsized. And so both of these big dudes who didn't know how to swim were in the water with a canoe and a cooler, and they were wearing those, like, orange life vests, you know, but it, which was a little comical. It was like a scene from Tommy Boy, you know, it's just like this tiny little. So it was keeping them afloat, but they were panicking. They were panicking. And so on shore, I didn't know this at the time, but on shore, um, Apparently, Ben and Mike were standing at the lifeguard tower, and they figured out this was going on, and Mike got his float and got ready to dive out there, and Ben looked at Mike and said, do you need any help, or can I, can I help? And Mike looked back at him, and he stood like this, I guess. At least this is how the story goes. He stood like this, and he said, only if you can swim that far, <laughs> and then dove into the water, <laughs> okay? That was very much him. So he dove into the water to go out to these guys. Meanwhile, Ben calmly walks down the dock and goes over to the rowboats <laughs> and gets a rowboat and puts it in the water. All right. So all of that is happening, and we see that commotion from the, um, from the boat. And I see it, and I'm, I've got my ski vest on, and um, I'm kind of on the side of the boat. So when I see these guys and I figure out what's going on, we are closer to them than they are to the shore. And so I immediately just dive off of the boat, and I start swimming towards these guys. And so I get over to him, and I get the first guy. He's clinging onto the cooler because the cooler is floating. He's clinging onto the cooler, and he's panicking. He's, he's, and a panicking 300-pound-plus guy is not – it's like trying to give a cat a bath, okay? So <laughs> I get over to him, and, and I get him, and I, I kind of get him calmed down, and I pull him over to the canoe because the canoe's upside down but still floating a bit. And so we get him over to the canoe with the other guys, and I just sort of hold him. 
And while I'm out there holding them, Ben in the rowboat gets out there before Mike, who is swimming out there with the float. Ben gets there first with the rowboat. We're able to get their hands onto the back of the rowboat. And Ben, I kind of go out front, grab the rope and help pull it. And then Ben um, takes them back into shore. And eventually Mike meets us there at the shore. All right. And we get them up on land. And thankfully, everybody was safe and everything was fine. All right. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not telling this story. I don't like telling stories where I'm the hero. So I'm not, not a hero. I was just close to it. So I went in and got it. But so we're all sort of on shore and, and talking about what happened and whatever. They're telling me the story about Mike saying, only if you can swim that far. And, um, and this group that had come, they were, these guys were really rattled. They were really scared. Um, and so they decided that their day was done and that they were all going to head back to where they, where they came from. And so they were all getting ready to, to load up into the, um, into the van. And the, one of the guys, the first guy that I went to, walks down to me, and he says, thank you so much for coming and calming me down and making sure that I got back safely. And then he reached out to shake my hand and shook my hand, and then he turned around, and he walked, and he jumped into the van. And then the van left, and about the time he jumped into the van, I realized that he put a $100 bill in my hand. And I was like, I don't want this. (laughs) Like, that's, that's not why I did that. That's, I, I, didn't, I didn't jump into the water expecting you to pay me back or to give me money. And now the, the fact that you've done this because you feel like you're somehow, I don't know, it almost cheapens it a little bit for me. Like I didn't quite know how to feel it. Like I didn't want it. So I gave, I don't remember what I did. I didn't keep it. I, I gave it away or Ben took it, I think. <laughs> you know, like, like I didn't, it's not why I did it. The, the reason that I did it wasn't to get anything back. You think about people in our lives that we consider heroes, the firefighters or police officers or people in the military or nurses, doctors, and those kinds of things. We, we they don't go, I hope, don't go into it because they're trying to get something back. You do that kind of thing because you look at people and realize they're valuable. And you realize that they are loved, that they are valuable. And if you're a believer, I hope that your motivation is they are valuable because God says they're valuable. They are just as valuable as me, whether they're down in the mine or whether they're standing on top of the Alp. And ultimately, we both have the same problem. And so when I jumped in the water, I jumped in the water because there was a person who needed help. And so the love that was in my heart caused me to jump in there to help. I didn't do it for $100 back. Now, I'm sure Ben really appreciated the $100. And when, you, when someone thanks you or when you receive something having done something good, it does feel, does feel good. It was just weird in that moment for me. But when Jesus came and gave his life on the cross, he didn't come and give his life on the cross because he was expecting anything from you, because he was expecting to be paid back by you. He did it because he loves you, and that's it. And his love for you is so deep that he was willing, greater love has no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for you. 
And the question for us is, how are we going to appreciate and value what he's done? You are justified freely by the sacrifice of Jesus in your place. And what is that going to mean for me? What does that mean for you? Now, if you, have, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then I know what that means for you. Today, you need to put your trust in Jesus for salvation and stop trusting in yourself for salvation. And so today, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, in your place, and in his resurrection. Put your faith in him today. If, if that's something that you did yesterday, or you did that 50 years ago, then the question is, how does understanding the gospel and what Jesus has done for me, how does it change my life right now? How does it change the way I think about him? How does it change the way I feel about him? How does it change the way I respond to him or show him appreciation, worship him, honor him, and serve him in my life? What does it mean for you? How are you going to be different with a deeper understanding of the gospel? How are you going to be different? How are you going to love him more and follow him more faithfully? And that's what I think we all need to be processing and thinking about today. And so we're going to sing another song together. I want you to be thinking about that. Sarah's going to lead us through that song. I want you to be thinking about that as we're singing. I want you to be thinking about it as you're getting ready for your group this week and getting ready to have a discussion with other believers about what it means to, to them and how it's changing them. And you're going to understand and appreciate it more deeply. Spend time this week in prayer. I want to encourage you to spend time week this, this week in prayer, specifically thanking Jesus, thanking him, recognizing what he's done and deepening your appreciation for him. All right, and as we do that together, all it's going to do is it's going to take the roots of our church as, as individuals and as a group together, the roots of love, love for God and worship, love for each other and service, and it's going to continue to deepen them and deepen them and deepen them. This is the best news. It's the good news. All right, so let's go to God in prayer and thank him for it as we get ready to sing together. Father, we want you to know we love you so deeply and we are so thankful that you've done for us. Christ, you've done for us what we couldn't do, that, that God, you were able to maintain your righteousness and your justice, knowing that there is a, a debt to be paid And that you did that by allowing your son, your one and only son, to give his life. Christ, that you suffered and died and shed your blood on our behalf. So, Father, we thank you for that today. We ask you to help us understand it and appreciate it, to feel it in our heart and our soul, to know that your love for us is so deep and so wide, and that you are good and you are just, but that you have justified us freely through faith in Jesus Christ.
And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We ask that you affirm and strengthen and solidify our faith in what you've done. I pray for anyone today who has not put their faith in you and they're continuing to try and earn it. They're continuing to try and be a good person or follow the rules or met whatever. I pray God today you make it so clear to them that they can't do that. And that their only hope is in Jesus Christ. Their only hope is that Jesus pays for them. And that today they would put their faith in Jesus. That that would be a tremendous weight off of their shoulders. And that all of us with unburdened shoulders would understand the freedom that you've given to us. but that we would use that freedom. We would use that freedom not for our own selves, not for our own benefit, not for those old sinful desires, but that we would use the freedom that we've given to give our life over to you. To honor you with our entire life, to express worship to you with our entire life. that everything we do and everything we say and everything that we think would bring honor and glory to you because we are so thankful knowing that we can never even pay you back or even begin to pay you back but we do this freely because of our love for you so hear that from us see that from us Father, we bring all of this to you with gratefulness and sincere hearts. And we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.